yeah, and then they ate my poop. Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch, the show that never loses that love and feeling. Never. Never. Not as long as I'm here because I'm so lovable. Great. There's lots of singing. <laughs> Lindsay's doing lots of singing right now. So I'm Evie Rubenstein. This is a podcast where we explore the secret meanings behind famous songs, cultural implications, different versions, things that you didn't know or thought you knew. Things you should think about. Things you should think about. Uh <laughs> My name is Aviv Rubenstein. I already said that. I'm a writer and director and musician, and I'm the host, the the host prime for this week. But joining me as always is one Miss Lindsay Tucker. How are you doing this week, Lindsay? Hi, I'm great. I had a lot of coffee, so you're in for a treat. Wonderful. (laughs) I threw out my back yesterday, so. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, I just think of your little squirming body underneath the bed, and it brings me so much joy. (laughs) That's exactly, exactly right. So uh, when I moved into my new place, it came with a Murphy bed that was braced to the wall. And so yesterday, for a good for no good reason really i decided to unbrace it so i could get rid of it and it fell on me and so now i've heard murphy beds are cool was it in the way it was in the way okay um so yeah you do with it i Uh, want it send it to me okay you you want to come pick it up yes great so you can you can absolutely have it do you still have that tv too because if i'm coming i gotta make it work i sold the tv to one of my students i could probably get it back though it's just one of my students (laughs) We're coming for the TV. Johnny, I need the TV back. (laughs) Yes. So this week, our Famous Monsters series continues. What is the Famous Monsters series? What is the Famous Monsters series? So the Famous Monsters series is something I kind of stumbled upon after discovering that John Hinckley has like a YouTube channel full of songs. John Hinckley's the guy that shot Ronald Reagan. He's trying to get a record deal. Yeah. And so... Hinckley is out there trying to get a record deal, so we needed to know about that. And so I decided to do a deep dive into famous murderers or famous monsters who have who are somehow behind your favorite songs and Hinkley is a would-be murderer Hinkley is as a far w- as well we know. he did he did murder oh he somebody, did murder that guy but he didn't murder reagan but famous monsters is the name of a misfits album and so we're i'm just calling the series famous monsters mini series famous monsters so today we're going to be talking if you couldn't hear if you couldn't get it from the top of the show we're going to be talking about the righteous brothers you've lost that loving feeling loving feeling but before we do that we have a little trip to the mailbag always a pleasure always a pleasure so uh as a part of our Devo slash john hinckley episode i i mentioned this is from the corrections department i mentioned that they recorded their first record in cologne which i thought was in italy until friend of the show dan wrote in and says you do know that cologne is in germany not italy aviv thanks dan also, Dan, thank you for making me realize that I just tune out sometimes when Aviv talks. Right. Because I was like, I don't know, even know what you're talking don't about. Don't we all? I don't even recognize you ever talking about Cologne at all. <laughs> well, great. Um, also, Dan may have given me COVID, so we're even. 
Thanks um, again, Dan. Uh, additionally, from the mailbag, Jody Pazanisi. So Jody Pazanisi is a huge Leonard Cohen fan, and she sent us a picture of a quilt, a handmade quilt of a bunch of Leonard Cohen album art. She says, one could safely say that Leonard Cohen is my favorite artist ever, and he was my favorite since I saw him in Adam Egoyan's Exotica in 1998. So Jody goes on to say, so Jody listened to part one of Hallelujah Today and goes on to say, Leonard Cohen can't sing with like a <laughs> raised eyebrow. No, he fucking can't. Sorry, Jody. But this is this is a this is an interesting thing this is why i brought this all up so she writes cohen changes his lyrics in live shows all the time when i saw him in 2009 i bought a canvas bag from the souvenirs stuff and wrote every lyric change on the bag small changes big changes whatever cool but then someone washed the bag and i don't someone. have it every and i don't have it anymore <laughs> i wonder who it was yeah. charles manson's ghost yeah and from our iTunes, Apple Music user review. This is a, a user review from JD101SS called This Music Nerd is Pleased. Wow. Woohoo. This podcast is fun, <laughs> funny, informative, and provides really insightful cultural criticism that fills my heart with joy. The Devo episode kind of blew my mind. I knew none of the connection to John Hinckley Jr. I'm telling all my friends to listen to this. Great job. Thanks, JD101SS. Tell all your friends. Tell all your friends. And message us. We'll send you a little prize or something. I don't know. I have a box We're of working on swag. We're if working on swag. swag. Yeah, let us, us know. Up. So, without any further ado, because Lindsay's going to be even more mad at me, on to the day's main event. You've lost that loving feeling. So, tell me, what do you know about this song? This is a song from the 60s. Okay. Good Yay so far. Nine. Yay. Okay. It's by the Righteous Brothers. Correct. Kind of. There's a lot of covers. Like, I think Holland Oates covered mm -hmm. it. I think it's in Top Gun. It is absolutely in Top Gun. We're going <laughs> to talk about Top Gun. Which is the yeah. first time I... That, that's my introduction to the song is Top Gun. Okay. I know Great. that there's always like a, how did you come to the song? Uh, yeah. I, I found it through Top Gun. So let's, let's take a listen to the song first, just to refresh everybody's memory. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips And there's no tenderness like grief in your fingertips You're trying hard not to show it But baby I do. 
Okay, so what do we think that this song is about? This song is about a relationship that grew stale. Great. I love that. So here are the the lyrics, just in case just in case you don't there are some people who like can't understand lyrics when they're sung. And so what? let's is just Is that like a like a type of dyslexia? I don't know. So can we do a dramatic reading of the lyrics here? You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. That's super dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, baby. baby. (laughs) But baby, baby, I know it. You've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that love and feeling. You've lost that love and feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa. Now there's no welcome look in your eyes when I reach for you. Now you're starting to criticize the little things I do. It makes me feel just like crying, baby. Because, baby, something beautiful's dying. You've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that loving feeling. You've lost (laughs) that loving feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa. Didn't Justin Timberlake sing gone, gone, gone? He sang bye, bye, bye. (laughs) I think there was a gone song, too. There is a a gone song. (laughs) All right, bring us home. Baby, baby, I get down on my knees for you. If you would only love me like you used to do. Yeah. We had a love. A love you don't find every day, yay. Day, yay. So don't, don't, don't let it slip away. 
baby, 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 I beg of you, please, please, I need your love. I need your love. I need your love. I need your love. So bring it back. Bring it on back. Bring back that love and feeling. Whoa. Whoa that love and feeling. Whoa. <laughs> bring back that love and feeling. Because it's gone, gone, gone. And I can't go on. No. Okay. So You've Lost That Love and Feeling is a song written by Barry Mann. Not, not to be confused with Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow? Uh, Barry Mann, Cynthia Wheel, and Phil Spector. It was first recorded by the American vocal duo, the Righteous Brothers, whose version was also produced by Spectre and is cited by some musical critics as the ultimate expression illustrated in Phil Spector's wall of sound musical recording technique. Okay. The record was a critical and commercial success on its release, reaching number one in early February 1965 in both the United States and the UK. The single ranked number five in Billboard's year-end top 100 of 1965. Based on its combined airplay and sales, not including the three charted weeks in December of 1964, it has entered the UK top 10 on an unprecedented three occasions. Three separate occasions. How far apart? Three. Well, we're going to talk about it. Okay. Okay. So... That was a that was already a mouthful, right? Uh, this is my this is my s- statement of this is the the thesis statement of the episode, right? So we're going to be talking about the Wall of Sound, the song, and Phil Spector. <laughs> the Wall of Sound, the, this song, Love and Feeling, and Phil Spector. Correct. Great. This is from Society of Rock. When producer Phil Spector signed the Righteous Brothers into his label, Phil's Records. He wanted a song that would fit there. Why'd you say it like that? Because it was it like a Z. It's P H I L L E S. Phils or Phillies or okay. Files. I don't know. Okay. Okay. He wanted a song that would fit their blue-eyed soul style, so he commissioned a husband and wife songwriting team, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel, to write a hit for them. We're going to talk about blue-eyed soul, right? Yes. But not right now. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. This is probably going to be a two-parter episode, so we'll we got we, I'm promising you a bunch of stuff. The song, The Righteous Brothers, The Wall of Sound, Phil Spector and Blue-eyed Soul. Okay. Spector flew the couple to Los Angeles and checked them into the Chateau Marmont. At the time, the Four Tops' first Motown single, Baby I Need Your Loving, was climbing up the charts, and so Man and Wheel took inspiration from that, right? They wanted to write like a soul song that was like a ballad like Baby I Need Your Loving. So, I I mean, I I can hear the kind of the, the DNA sharing between this and loving feeling, right? That it's like mm-hmm. trying to capitalize on the beginnings of Motown in 1964. So Baby I Need Your Loving was climbing up the charts and Man and Wheel took inspiration from that and decided to do a ballad. This is from the Wall Street Journal, quote, Barry Man. This is a, a much more recent interview, but he's talking about... 1965, 1964. So Barry Mann, we flew out from New York to check out to, and checked into the Chateau Marmont in Hollywood, the only hotel that let you roll a rented piano into your room. Up at Phil's house, Phil Spector's house, he played us some records by the Righteous Brothers, and they sounded remarkably like Sam and Dave. Do you know who Sam and Dave were? No. 
So Sam and Dave were an R&B, an R&B duo that started in 1961. So it was, let's say, a black version of the Righteous Brothers, right? It was Sam Moore and Dave Prater. So right, right away, the writers of this song are like, wow, these two white guys sound just like these other two black guys. Okay. Cynthia Wheel says, we all plan to write together the next day, but back at the hotel, Barry and I started writing a draft. We loved the yearning of the four tops, baby, I need your loving. And Barry came up with the opening line, you never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. This is what Barry Mann has to say. My heart had been broken a few times, so it wasn't a stretch. I also might have been influenced by I love how you close your eyes whenever you kiss me, which is the opening line to I love how you love me by the Paris Sisters, a song that he himself had co-written in 1961, which was also (laughs) produced by Phil Spector. So he's saying like, oh, my old song really inspired me. So I just wanted to riff on that. Tap back into that. Um, So this is... This is uh, I Love How You Love Me by the Paris Sisters. I love how your eyes close whenever you kiss me. And when I'm away from you. So this is a classic doo wop chord, chord progression. The one, six, four, five. It kind of sounds like one of the songs that's in um, My Best Friend's Wedding. Sure. Or Back to the Future. So this song should... This song is like vaguely familiar to me. Right? So that's I Love How You Love Me. So right now we've already listened to the two parents of You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Right? Which is Baby I Need Your Loving and I Love How You Love Me. Right? And those two so- songs combine in Wheel and Man's minds and became You've Lost That Loving Feeling. So Wheel says, about an hour later, Barry and I had two verses, the story part of the song and the chorus, Mr. Man. But we were looking for a bridge and an ending. So we called Phil Spector and played him what we had. And he said he had tears in his eyes when he heard Cynthia's line, something beautiful's dying. Cynthia Wheel says... At Phil's the next day, he added the whoa, whoa, woes in the chorus. As a lyricist, I cringed. It sounded like filler. Man says, for the bridge, Phil experimented on piano with the hang on Sloopy riff. You know, hang on Sloopy. Yeah, when I was a kid, I thought it was Snoopy and I thought it was about Snoopy the dog. Uh, well, you were wrong. And I was very upset to find out I was wrong. <laughs> that it wasn't Snoopy. <laughs> I like songs about dogs. It's true. Um, so, man, for the bridge, Phil experimented on the piano with the hang on sloopy riff. It was brilliant. I built a melody on the riff while Cynthia shouted out lyrics, baby, baby, I get down on my knees for you, and so on. When we met the Righteous Brothers a few days later, we were nervous that they might not like it. So Bill and Bobby, the two Righteous Brothers, stood at the piano while Barry, man, played and sang the melody, and Phil sang harmony, Phil Spector. At the end, there was dead silence, and F- Bill said, sounds good for the Everly Brothers. At first, he I, I don't know what this means. Is this a burn? It is a burn. The Everly Brothers were, like, way less soulful than the, than the Righteous Brothers. Okay. They were, like, a country rock and roll duo. They sang a song called Kathy's Clown. It's horrifying. Yeah. 
So this is what they thought it sounded like, right? Very, very white. Very the back of my Nana's car. <laughs> sure. I, d- I don't know what kind of music your Nana listened to, but I can make some assumptions. <laughs> All right. Phil asked them to try it themselves. Phil wanted Bill to sing the verses alone with Bobby joining on the choruses, right? So the thing about the Righteous Brothers is that they would sing everything in harmony the entire time. And Phil Spector wanted only one of the Righteous Brothers to sing on the verses alone and the other one, Bobby Hatfield, to join on on the choruses. And Bobby wasn't happy about it. He said to Phil, what am I supposed to do while the big guy is singing? And Phil snapped back, you can go to the bank. You can go to the motherfucking bank. Yeah. So Phil Spector, within the first 15 minutes of the song's existence, knew that this was going to be a massive hit, right? Yeah. Show me the money. Show me the money. So, real quick, because there's a a Bill, a Barry, a Phil, and a Bobby, let's talk a little bit about... Using people's last names. Yes. Let's talk about that. Let's (laughs) talk about that. So, the two members of the Righteous Brothers are Bill Medley and Bobby Hatfield. Medley and Hatfield. Medley and Hatfield. Those names don't sound real. Yeah, this is why, right? This is why I'm like, Bill, Bobby, Phil. All right, so we have Phil Spector, Bill Medley, Bobby Hatfield, and Barry Mann, and Cynthia Wheel, or Weil. I don't know how to pronounce her fucking last name. So, before signing with Phil Spector, the Righteous Brothers had some minor hits on the Moon Glow record label, including Little Latin Loopy Lou and, wow. and My Babe. So, after coming to Phil Spector's attention, he thought that they could be super famous with the right kind of, he was like a record producer, songwriter, manager. He, he, like, he was like the, the Mozart. He wanted control of everything, right? And so he bought out the remaining two and a half years of the Righteous Brothers contract with Moonglow Records so he could like put them on his own record label, Phil's Records. But when the song became a major hit, Moonglow re-released a lot of the Righteous Brothers' old material so that they could capitalize on their new fame. So, because they still had some of the rights. Yeah. So, so okay. th- all of the when you record something for a record label, they own the master tapes. So, right. even like though Taylor, they were like, Taylor's like Taylor, like Britney, like whatever, <laughs> right? And so, even though Phil Spector bought out the remaining two and a half years of the Righteous Brothers' contract with Moonglow, Moonglow still had. Coco Joe and My Babe and Little Lupe, Little Latin Lupe Lou and so they re-released them again after You've Lost That Love and Feeling came out. The title was actually just a placeholder though. Uh, it was a placeholder until they could think of something better but Phil Spector thought it was great so they went with it. With most of the song written Man and Wheel completed the song at Phil Spector's house where Phil worked with them to finish composing the that bridge right? Baby, baby, I get down on my knees for you. The hang on Sloopy Bridge, right? So they, the three of them hold equal writing credit on the song. But in terms of what, who actually wrote who, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel wrote basically the whole song and then co-wrote the bridge with Phil Spector. But Phil Spector did the whoa, whoa, woes, and Cynthia Wheel was like, this is fucking trash. <laughs> okay. I, you've said this before, right? Like, all you have to do is change a word to get a Change a word, get a third, credit. yeah. Okay. But it's also a little unfair because Phil Spector is a songwriter, was the band's 
manager and ran the record label. So like it's it's kind it's not super uh, equitable. Let's say in favor of who? In favor of anyone who's not Phil Spector. He has all the control. He has all the control, right? He could say that he wrote the entire song if he wanted to, and there would probably be very little that anyone could do. What a dick. Well, he is a famous monster. <laughs> According to Song Facts, Spectre got a songwriting credit on the track as he usually demanded one. And at this oh. time, he had the clout to just get it. And Cynthia Wheel has gone on record saying Spectre never really wrote any songs. Instead, he just inspired them. So the song was the Righteous Brothers' first release on Phil's records, and it shot to number one, giving both the duo, the Righteous Brothers, and the songwriting team of Man and Wheel their first number one hit. It was actually Phil Spector's third number one hit as a producer. He Which were his other twos? I'm going to tell you. He had previously hit the top spot with a song called To Know Him Is To Love Him, by the teddy bears and he's a rebel by the crystals now we are going to listen to those songs but later because to know him is to love him might be the song that we listen to for part two of this episode okay so hang hang tight nail biter yes so phil specter produced the song using his famous wall of sound recording technique so this is a relatively common thing to talk about in like recording circles the wall of sound specifically phil specter's wall of sound so yeah do what do you know about phil specter's wall of sound i'm glad you asked because i have questions yes so i know that it's a producing technique what mm -hmm. we call it to sort of create a bigger sound correct than in to make the studio sound more like rich and full and so my understanding is that they would kind of layer different instruments on top of each other to make them sound like one. Yes. You're 100%. Well, you're 99%. So imagine yourself back in 19, the 1960s, right? There's no digital recording technique. There's, there's not even multi-track recording, right? So basically everything needs to be tracked live. You can't play stuff back. You have to just kind of go for it, right? And so the wall of sound was developed as the first multi-track recording where you could layer stuff was developed, but okay. you had a, a limited number of tracks to deal with. At first it was eight and then it was 16 by comparison these days with digital recording. There's an infinite number of tracks. There's like 256 tracks that you could do or more. Right. Yeah. But in back in the day, if you wanted more than eight tracks, you would have to do a, what's called a mix down. So you would have all eight tracks on pieces of tape, Right. And then you'd mix mm -hmm. those down onto one piece of tape. And then, and then you could do seven more and mix it down again and then do seven more and mix it down again. So it was okay. a, a really difficult process. And we talked a little bit about that on our Africa episode as well. Africa, yeah. Where they're recording tape to tape. It's like it's a real pain in the dick. Remember the 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 guitar solo that got lost because no one cleaned the playhead. <laughs> yeah. So sad. All right. So the wall of sound, or it's also called the Spectre Sound, is a Music production formula developed by Phil Spector at Gold Star Studios in the 60s. and Not to be confused with the Grateful Dead's wall of sound. Correct. Different thing. In my research, that was a difficult thing to pause. Distinction? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we also have to give credit to the engineer whose name is Larry Levine and a conglomeration of session musicians later known as... The Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew. <laughs> 
Nailed it. Yeah. So the intention was to exploit the possibilities of studio recording to create unusually dense orchestral aesthetics that came across well through radios and jukeboxes of the era. So Spectre explained in 1964, I was looking for a sound, a sound so strong that if the material was not the greatest, the sound would just carry the record. It was a case of augmenting, 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 and it all fit together like a jigsaw. A popular misconception about the wall of sound is it's just a lot of noise, right? That you put every instrument as high as it will go and you've got some distortion and it smacks you like a wall. It's just like a a loudness wall. That's not exactly true. It's not, it's actually not true at all. Is it like, we're going to do these three string instruments and then you're going to think that's whatever a cello yeah so so your brain it's it's this is where you where you lose the one percent is your brain is, isn't going to think it's a, any instrument your brain's just going to hear the music right so it this is tough to this is tough to point out because basically every record every pop record since the mid 70s has used this technique so anything that you hear on the radio that's like a like a pop song like made for popular consumption is using this wall of sound technique where you don't know what instrument is playing what. It's just like tones. Well, we've also lost a lot of instruments, haven't we? Yeah. So so that's the that's the logical conclusion of the wall of sound is like we're we're creating we have these artificial instruments that are just creating sound waves out of digital space and they can cover whatever spectrum they want to cover. But in the 60s this was much tougher because they needed to use real analog instruments so to attain the wall of sound specter's arrangement called for large ensembles including some instruments not generally used for ensemble playing like electric guitars and acoustic guitars and multiple instruments doubling or tripling the parts to create a fuller and richer tone so for example Spectre often duplicated a part by playing it on an acoustic piano, electric piano, and a harpsichord all the same time. Mixed well enough, these three instruments would then be indistinguishable to the listener, right? Yeah. So you're, you're dead on. NPR's senior producer, whose name is Steve Prophet, says, Combining traditional rock instruments, electric guitar-based drums, with orchestral strings, harps, and even glockenspiels and French horns, Spectre created a symphonic palette that was perfect for the era's jukeboxes and AM radios. Because the speakers and the transistors of the era were kind of shitty, the sound needed to be thicker to register, right? Uh, No, explain that to me. So you've listened to an old shitty speaker, right? Mm-hmm. The music sounds thin. There's yeah, th- there's sure. not a, a good representation of the full audio spectrum. So Spectre and company, Spectre and Levine, are creating a, a maximum representation of everywhere along the audio spectrum so that even on the shittiest speaker, this would sound It sounds full. robust. Yeah, it okay. would sound robust. So among features of the sound, Spectre incorporated... Strings, woodwind, brass, percussions, not really associated with youth-oriented pop music, and also reverb from an echo chamber. So the thing about Gold Star Studios is it had a really famous echo chamber. So it was hi- this was highlighted for additional texture. He would record these vocals or these strings or whatever in this massive echo chamber that would double the instrumentation for him. Oh, right, nice. 
And once again, these days with digital music production, you can just drop a plug in in there. But this is someone kind of exploring a new frontier of how to record music. Mm-hmm. He characterized the method as Wagnerian, a Wagnerian approach to rock and roll. Little symphonies for the kids. That's what he said. Little symphonies for the kids. Wagner, Those... who was a Nazi. <laughs> Those rock and roll kids? Those rock and roll kids. It's for the kids. The combination of large ensembles with reverberation effects also increased the average audio power in a way that now resembles compression. So compression, which is something that you are hearing, you listeners are hearing right now, it takes the low sounds, the the quiet sounds and makes them a little louder and takes the loud sounds and makes them a little quieter so that there is an overall sense of uniformity in volume. And if we want to talk kind of about modern compression and modern music mastering, there is something called the loudness war, where everyone is trying to compress their music to be the loudest possible because they want to feel like the biggest, boldest, baddest, whatever rock and roll song. And that's not actually what how you perceive loudness. You perceive loudness through a full representation of the audio spectrum and not um, just volume, pure volume. Then why are they doing that? Because people are stupid. Oh, okay. Because bands don't know. Because bands are musicians, but they, and they're listening to their mixes. I, you know, I say this from experience. Bands are idiots, and they're listening to their mixes, and they're saying, we want this to be louder. This isn't as loud as X or Y or Z. And what, they're, what they want is more, what they think they want is more volume. But what the problem is, is they haven't arranged and produced their records properly to represent the full audio spectrum. By, by 1979, the use of compression had become common on the radio, and this marked the trend that led to the loudness wars. So the loudness wars, think of a blanket, right? We think that the bigger the blanket is, the warmer it will keep you at night. When Phil Spector is saying, you actually just need a regular-sized blanket, you just need 10 of them. Or a thicker one? Yeah, or a thicker one, right? But like, okay, when your shit's getting mixed, I feel like you're like, I want this to be louder. Like you're doing that exact same thing when it's like, it's kind of already a really loud jumble of sounds. So, so yeah. So there's a difference between a mix and a master, right? So the, so this is, this is a, a, a great example, right? So let's say on my song, I have guitar, bass, and drums and vocals, right? Four things, one guitar, one bass, dr- a drum set and vocals. I can say, oh, I want the guitar to be louder as compared to the bass and the drums and the vocals. Or I want the the drums to be louder in this part as compared. But there's a maximum volume that eventually gets reached. What Phil Spector pioneered and Levine pioneered is saying, well, what we want to do is we want to double up the guitar in a way that you don't notice that there's two guitars playing the same thing and we want to triple up the bass and we want to add another drum kit and we want to have 10 vocals vocalists singing the same vocal parts and even though the volume of anything hasn't changed because there's a maximum volume that eventually gets reached the sound feels thicker because of all these extra things and gives you the perception of loudness of more presence right it's a chorus of instruments yes 
Stephen Prophet again, who's the NPR senior producer. The Wall of Sound was mu- was more than just an unusual approach to instrumentation. Spectre assembled a group of stellar musicians, including Glenn Campbell, Leon Russell, Dr. John, and he created the wall using doubled and tripled string sections, multiple guitar and bass and piano players, as well as virtuoso singers like Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. Echo was an important ingredient. Spectre used the legendary echo chamber at Gold Star Studios in Hollywood. Sound from the recording studio was fed into speakers inside a specially constructed room with very thick, hard walls, and microphones then picked up the reverberated sound in the room and fed them back into Spectre in the control room. Do you think he did any murders in the echo chamber? Um, Keep listening. (laughs) The intricacies of the technique were unprecedented in the field of sound production for popular music. And according to our friend of the show, Brian Wilson, who used this formula, eventually Mm. used this formula extensively. The Beach Boys used this a lot. Yes. So the Phil Spector never produced anything for the Beach Boys, but the wall of sound was very inspirational for Brian Wilson. So Brian Wilson says, in the 40s and 50s, arrangements were considered, okay, here, listen to the French horn, listen to the string section now. It was all a very definite sound. There weren't combinations of sounds. And with the advent of Phil Spector, we find sound combinations, which, scientifically speaking, is a brilliant aspect of sound production. That's Brian Wilson's quote. So how come no one has thought about this before? It sounds kind of, to me... Sounds like a no-brainer, right? I'm like, this is so obvious. Um, It's obvious because it's been close to 70 years since the Wall of Sound was created, like 60 years since the Wall of Sound was created. But the other thing is it, it, it was accompanying a technological leap forward because you don't have to track things live anymore. Right, you can overdub things. You can record multiple versions of the same part and layer them. In the mid '60s, in the '40s and '50s, you had to record everything in one room at one time. That's it, right? So the more players you had, the more opportunity you have for mistakes and for fuck ups and for whatever mm, else, right? True. And production wasn't necessarily an art, right? The it art, wasn't. the art of production wasn't a, a thing basically until Phil Spector and Brian Wilson came along. Hmm. So this is not the, it, it is an easy concept to grasp in some ways and kind of a hard concept to grasp in another way. And so we have, we, we luckily have the ability to compare and contrast the wall of sound stuff with non wall of sound stuff. Yeah. Thanks to our buddies in the Beatles. The Beatles. So long story short, Phil Spector produced the Beatles album, Let It Be, and it was the recording style that they weren't used to. They were used to being a little bit more straightforward. Meanwhile, you know, they're in the process of breaking up. This is 1969. They were really unhappy with the way that the record came out and with each other. So they shelved it to make Abbey Road, and then they released Let It Be in 1970, the year after Abbey Road. And then eventually they re-released Let It Be in 2003 without any of the Phil Spector stuff. And that's called Let It Be Naked. Let It Be Naked. There's kind of a political reason why they released it without the Spector stuff in 2003, but we'll get to that later. So we can do a compare and contrast of Wall of Sound versus non-Wall of Sound Beatles stuff from Let It Be. Sick. Which song are we doing? We're doing two songs. 
So, okay. so this is Get Back, which is the first track on Let It Be. Get back, back to where you once belong. So listen real close, right? There's two guitars. There's a guitar in your left ear, just going junka, 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 and there's one in your right ear doing chords. The second guitar's gone. They're playing the piano. Oh, there it is. It's back there. And the drums are pretty spread. But listen to the vocals. Right, so it's just one McCartney. Just one McCartney. Just one McCartney. Okay, let's, let's stop that and let's listen to the Phil Spector version of the Wall of Sound version of Get Back. So now we have a harmony on the chorus that's, a, that's more, more present, right? The guitar on the right is definitely more present, I think, doubled up. Yeah, I can hear it more in the right ear during the piano solo than I did before. The drums are spread further. So yeah, the instruments are fuller and, and thicker, and that has... Even though you can't hear individual additions, there are more instruments. Get back, Loretta. Well, I hate to say it, but I like the Spectre version better. That's fine. A lot of people... I mean, he was a genius for a reason. So this is uh, The Long and Winding Road, and this is the Phil Spectre version. A long, long time ago... So we've got strings in our left ear, horns in our right ear. We have a, definitely a chorus kind of in our back right. You hear the ooze? Okay, so that's that's all stuff that is texture, right? It should be largely invisible. Now let's listen to the Let It Be Naked version of The Long and Winding Road. Alright, so it's, now it's just piano. And there's guitar in your right ear. And no strings, no horns, no chorus, right? But here's the thing. The volume is the same. You are hearing the same amount of decibels. Right. What you're missing is a bunch of the musical texture. And now we have like this. It's like a it's electric piano. This <laughs> is me and my Casio in 1995. Yeah, right. Sounds like an electric piano on like a flute setting. Okay, so we can we can kill that. But this is this is the specific difference between like something that Phil Spectre did produce and something that they didn't produce. So Phil Spectre was determined to make You've Lost That Loving Feeling his finest production to date and wanted it to be better than anything released by the current top producers of the day, which were Barry Gordy from Motown, George Martin, who was doing the Beatles, Andrew Lug Oldman, and Brian Wilson. So he chose the Righteous Brothers for their tremendous vocal talents, and he enlisted his old jazz guitar idol, 
Barney Kessel to play on the song. Other musicians included Carol Kay, Earl Palmer, Ray Pullman, and... Carol Kay was in the Wrecking Crew. Yes. These are all Wrecking Crew people. Okay. And backing vocals done by Cher. Nice. So Cher did a lot of work with Spectre early in her career. And so she's she's on background near the end of the song. Spectre was the first West Coast producer to make musicians wear headphones. So when they heard the song, they heard it with all the processing that he already added. Right. So it's going through into the echo chamber and back out. Like us right now? Like us right now, right? So bef- so if we were recording without headphones and our computer speakers were just feeding out into the world, that's, you know, this is, once again, simple shit, but he was one of the first major producers in, on the West Coast, at least, to do this. This got musicians out of their comfort zones and made them work together to sound to get a sound that gelled. It took more time to record this way, but Spectre didn't give a shit. While a typical three-hour session would produce about four songs, Back in the day, Spectre would spend an entire three-hour session working on one track, leaving maybe a few minutes at the end to record a throwaway B-side jam. Bill Medley, the one of the Righteous Brothers singers, recalls spending about eight hours working with Spectre on the vocals for this song. It was a tedious process since they had to record over previous takes in order to put down a new one. They couldn't paste them together like we do now. Mm-hmm. Also, Spectre was very particular about the performances. Medley produced some of the Righteous Brothers album cuts and usually spent about 30 minutes working on the vocals. This is a quote from Bill Medley from the Wall Street Journal. Bobby and I went into the studio a few weeks later to record the vocals. Phil had already recorded and overdubbed all of the instrument tracks. So when I put the headphones on, the music sounded as big as Montana with the touch of New York. Hmm. Phil had me sing the opening verse over and over and over until he had his take. Then we'd move on to the next part and the next part and the next part and repeat the process. We went on for two days, four hours each day. My emotion on there was real. Two years earlier, my wife at the time of the recording, Karen, was my girlfriend and had broken up with me for about six months. I really ate it. That ache, that's the ache that you hear. That's the ache of a lost Karen. That's the ache of a lost Karen. That's actually what the song was going to be called. The ache of a lost Karen. (laughs) So recording the vocals for Love and Feeling took more than 39 takes with Medley and Bobby Hatfield singing each verse over and over and over again. So now it's time to talk about the style of music. We had mentioned it a couple of times, but this is a style of music called Blue-Eyed Soul. Sure. All right, Lindsay. What is Blue-Eyed Soul? Okay. Blue-Eyed Soul. (sighs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Fucking exactly. Uh, Yeah. So I'm going to give it through my own lens, right? Mm -hmm. It's the appropriation of R&B music to white people. So like when R&B first started becoming popular and white people realized that it was- Back when it was called Rhythm and Blues. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) White people realize that it was profitable and how are they going to capitalize on that? And so what they're going to do is put forth some blue-eyed soul options, appropriate the music, um, put some white people in the spotlight and capitalize on the black talent because they believe that white people were more marketable to white audiences, which was a larger percentage uh, of the population. Especially the record-buying population. Yes. Yeah. 
So you're 100% right. Blue-Eyed Soul is music created by white recording artists who faithfully imitated this. This is from Britannica, by the way. Blue-Eyed Soul music is music created by white recording artists who faithfully imitated the soul music of the 1960s and later, a select few of whom were popular with black audiences as well as white listeners. So, Who are the select few? that the, the, did the crossover well the righteous brothers i feel like blue-eyed soul even though we might not use that such egregious term these days is still like oh, right now happening yes so okay. in contrast to the scores of white performers who simply covered and someone said stole composition of black artists and we are going to do several episodes on that the practitioners of blue-eyed soul devoted themselves to and identified with contemporary black music in a manner rare outside the jazz community the premier blue-eyed soul performers of the 1960s were the righteous brothers so this is britannica being extremely generous to the idea that these white artists just really identified with the soul music of the 60s and devoted their entire careers to singing the songs like not of black musicians but singing songs like black musicians were singing so this is about capitalism this is about stealing money profits and it's not just about the musicians who quote unquote dedicated their life to appropriating black music it's about the record labels and the people behind them who prop them up to cash in on the profits of black music 100 percent. and we heard specifically from the story of the creation of the song baby i need your loving is climbing the charts at this point and they wanted to do a song with white artists that felt like that right which would be which would be very palatable to all kinds of audience so so there's one speech that I always go back to. Do you know Jesse Williams? No. Jesse Williams is an actor. He's on Grey's Anatomy. Mm. He's a very vocal activist. And he has blue or green eyes. This That's actually tangential to what I was going to say. But this whole topic is very reminding me heavily of Jesse Williams. Because he's talked about how being a black man with blue eyes or maybe they're green... He is fetishized yes, and somehow deemed more valuable in the entertainment industry. And, 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 you know, he's probably been on like the sexiest man alive list before. And I mean, he seems like he's being objectified, right? Because brown skin, blue or green eyes, he like, like he's not a human being. He's just like, oh, look at that object. It, it, it's tokenism. Yeah, right. We we dismantle pieces of black culture and pieces of black bodies in order to prop up white artists and and inject white artists with something that we think is cool that comes from black people, but not when black people do it because that's like not palatable to white audiences, right? Exactly. So Jesse Williams gave a speech at this BET Awards and it went viral. And in it, he talked about just this idea of white people stealing from black people, propping them up. Yes. Oh, this is Jesse Williams. I know Jesse Williams. I didn't know that was his name. We've been floating this country on credit for centuries, yo. And we're done watching and waiting while this invention called whiteness uses and abuses us, burying black people out of sight and out of mind while extracting our culture, our dollars, our entertainment like oil, black gold ghettoizing and demeaning our creations, then stealing them, gentrifying our genius, and then trying us on like costumes 
before discarding our bodies like rinds of strange fruit. The thing is, though, the thing is that just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. So when, as we're getting into this topic, which I know you've done a lot of research on, and we're going to hear from other scholars or writers on this, mm-hmm. um, I just I, that speech came to mind because it's it's a true embodiment of whiteness, uh, this invention called whiteness, and how mm-hmm. as soon as white people you know see something profitable coming from a black body, they have to exploit it. Yes, absolutely. And and to speak more on the subject, this is from New York Times Magazine. It's called Why Is Everyone Always Stealing Black Music? And it's from Wesley Morris, who is a film critic. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner for criticism in 2021 and 2012. He is from Philly, which is my hometown area person. Um, And so this is... hometown area person. He's a hometown area person guy. <laughs> um, and so this is a long read. I, I'm, I'm excerpting, but uh, this is, I'll, I'll be, I will be speaking as Wesley Morris for the next couple of minutes. American music has been fated to thrive in an elaborate tangle almost from the beginning. Americans have made a political investment in the myth of racial separateness. The idea that Art forms can either be white or black in character, when aspects of many are at least both. Sure. The purity that separation struggles to maintain, this country's music is an advertisement for 400 years of the opposite. Centuries of amalgamation and miscegenation, as I long ago called it, of all manner of interracial collaborations conducted with dismaying ranges of consent. So this, I think, is super important, right? Is that we are amalgam like blue-eyed soul is not soul it is something different it is a whiteifying of soul music without the consent of soul artists that that was me as a v hold on because i'm thinking about separate is inherently not equal Mm -hmm. and so the minute we have to call something blue-eyed soul now it's separate now it's inherently not equal to soul to soul right and because it's white, we know that it's quote unquote, quote unquote supreme. Yeah. Go ahead. Back to Wesley Moore. What you're hearing in black music is a miracle of sound, an experience that can really happen only once. Not just melisma, glissandi, and the rasp of sax, breakbeats, or sampling, but the mood or inspiration from which those moments arise. The attempt to record it seems, if you think about it, like a fool's errand. You're not capturing the arrangements of notes per se. You're catching the spirit. And the spirit travels from host to host, racially indiscriminate about where it settles, selective about who can withstand being possessed by it. The rockin' backwoods blues so bewitched Elvis Presley that he believed he'd been called by blackness. Chuck Berry sculpted rock and roll with uproarious guitar riffs and lascivious winks at whiteness. Mick Jagger and Robert Plant and Steve Winwood and Janis Joplin and the Beatles jumped, jived, and wailed the black blues. Tina Turner rested it all back, tripling the octane in some of their songs. It's in the wink-wink costume funk of Beck's Midnight Vultures from 1999, an album whose kicking nonsense deprecations circle back to the pop culture of 150 years earlier. It's in the dead-eyed, serious, nostalgic dance floor schmaltz of Bruno Mars. 
It's in mm. what we once called blue-eyed soul, a term I've never really known what to do with because it's most convincing practitioners, the Bee Gees, Michael McDonald, Hollow Notes, simply read George Michaels, Taylor Dane, Lisa Stansfield, Adele, never winked at black people. So black people rarely batted an eyelash. Flaws and all, these are homegrowners as opposed to renters. No matter what, though, a kind of gentrification tends to set in, underscoring that black people have often been rendered unnecessary to attempt blackness. What does that mean, homegrowners instead of renters, in this context? These, all these artists come by their black appropriation authentically, right? Adele, the Bee Gees, Michael McDonald's, Hall & Oates, Simply Red, George Michael, they believe in what they're doing. How do we know that? Mm, he, this is Wesley Morris's assertion. Okay. So I don't know. I mean, you can't really say. Okay. Take Billboard's top 10 songs of 2013. It's mostly non-black artists strongly identified with black music. For Real and for Kicks, Robin Thicke, Miley Cyrus, Justin Timberlake, Macklemore, and Ryan Lewis, the dude who made the Harlem Shake. Mm. Blackness was on the move before my ancestors were legally free to be. On the move, that is. It was on the move before my ancestors even knew what they had. It was on the move because white people were moving it. And the white person most frequently identified as its prime mover is this dude, Thomas Dartmouth Rice, a New Yorker who performed as T.D. Rice and in acclaim was lusted after as Daddy Rice, the N-word par excellence. Rice was a minstrel by which the 1830s, when his stardom was at its most refulgent, refulgent, meaning he painted his face with burned cork to approximate those of enslaved oh black God, people he was imitating. That's what this is, right? This is modern yeah. day minstrelry. In, the eight, in 1830, Rice was a nobody actor in his early 20s, touring with a theater company in Cincinnati or Louisville, historians don't know for sure, when, as the story goes, he saw a decrepit, possibly disfigured old black man singing while grooming a horse on the property of a white man whose last name was Crow. On went the light bulb. Rice took in the tune and the movements, but failed, it seems, to take down the old man's name. So, in his song, based on the horse groomer, he renamed him. Jim Crow. Wheel about and turn about just so every time I wheel about, I jump Jim Crow. And just like that, Rice had invented the fellow who would become the mascot for two centuries of legalized racism. That night, Rice made himself up to look like the old black man or something like him because Rice's getup most likely concocted skin blacker than any actual black person's and a gibberish dialect meant to imply black speech. Rice had turned the old man's melody and hobbled movements into a song and dance routine that no white audience had ever experienced before. What they saw caused a permanent sensation. This is so upsetting. He reportedly won 20 encores. What blackface? This is like just as disturbing. Yeah, almost as abs- almost as disturbing as like lynching lunches. Yeah, because because one creates the other, right? We we are and, we are and we white people just think it's all hilarious, right? And we're making jokes about lynching and what and and the poverty that black people are are facing in our the theaters. Yeah. yeah. So what blackface minstrelry gave the country during this period was an entertainment of skill, ribaldry, polemics, but it also lent racism a stage upon which existential fear could become jubilation. Contempt could become fantasy. Paradoxically, its dehumanizing bent let white people feel more human. 
They could experience loathing as desire, contempt as adoration, repulsion as lust. They could weep for overworked Uncle Ned as surely as they could ignore his lashed back or his body as it swung from a tree. It's get out. It's get out. We are, we are possessing black bodies in, a, in just a different way. But where did this leave the black performer? If blackface was the country's cultural juggernaut, who would pay black people money to perform as themselves? After the Civil War, black performers had taken up minstrelsy too, corking themselves for both white and black audiences, with a straight face or a wink, depending on who was looking. Black troops invented important new dances with blue ribbon names, the Buck and Wing, the Virginia Essence, the Stop Time. But these were unhappy innovations, custom-obligated black performers to fulfill an audience's expectations, expectations that white performers had established. A black minstrel was impersonating the impersonation of himself. The proliferation of black music across the planet, proliferation in so many senses of being black, constitutes a magnificent joke on American racism. We still have that today with like the cab driver trope that you still see in movies where sure. it's like an Indian, the Indian guy. guy. Right? It's all the, yeah. This is this this has not gone away in the least. It's just not morphed, even a little. Right? It also confirms the attraction that someone like Rice had to that black man grooming the horse. But something about that desire warps and perverts its source, lampoons and cheapens it even in adoration. Loving black culture has never meant loving black people too. Loving black culture risks loving the life out of it. Americans have always loved black culture, but not loved black people. Yes, and Blue-Eyed Soul, even though it's 60 years old, it is ju- that was just the newest formation of that right the newest mutation permutation of the minstrelry now i'm sure if you ask the righteous brothers they would not say a thing about it but that doesn't really matter because they were still doing it right yeah what do you mean they wouldn't say a thing about yeah like i'm sure if you ask the righteous brothers they would be like no we just want to sing soul songs because they're cool right they don't understand I, I don't think any artist at this point understood their perpetuation of this at this point century old racial trope yeah but that's just like their unchecked privilege 100 percent. i'm not defending they have the them. privilege of appropriating it no i know you're not they have the privilege of appropriating it without even thinking, thinking about, about what how harmful is it and what are they doing and what are the actual implications and what does it really mean exactly so so that was all just context for the next part okay release of you've lost that loving feeling so phil Spector put a tremendous amount of effort and about thirty five thousand dollars into this production but the final product was so unusual that he began to wonder if he had a hit and he sought a second and third and fourth opinion he played the song for barry mann the co-writer barry mann was convinced that the song was recorded at the wrong speed it's weird to think about these things as like so unusual when they're so commonplace like in our minds. Yeah. Like sometimes I like to think about like what even before um the movie Bohemian Rhapsody came out, I was like I wonder what it would be like to like hear this song for the first time for the first yeah. time when it just came out and not having like grown up with it and it seems so natural like you'd have been like what the shit is that? Yeah, so Barry Mann said what the shit was that and he th- he thought that the song was recorded at the wrong speed. Spectre called Larry Levine to confirm that it was supposed to sound that way. Did he think it was too fast? He thought it was too slow. 
So in Rolling, in Rolling Stone, Barry Mann's quote, several weeks after we returned to New York, Phil called us to play as the finished record. I yelled over the phone to get Phil's attention. Phil, you've got it on the wrong speed. The song we had written was supposed to be three ticks faster and a tone and a half higher. Phil came back on and said, Barry, that's the record. Interesting. In Rolling Stone, Bill Medley, one of the Righteous Brothers, recalled, we had no idea whether it was going to be a hit. It was too slow, too long, and right in the middle of the Beatles and British Invasion. So Phil Spector also contacted his publisher, Don Kirshner, who Spector respected for his musical opinion. Kirshner thought it was great, but suggested changing the title to bring back that loving feeling to make it more optimistic. Hmm. Spectre also contacted the popular New York disc jockey Murray the K. You might remember Murray the K from our Paul is Dead episode. <laughs> Spectre confided to Murray that the song was almost four minutes long. Too long. The song was 3.45, right? This is from Cynthia Wheel. At first, we were surprised the song was a hit. It ran three minutes and 45 seconds, which was an eternity on the radio back then. But Phil loved it. So what he did was he changed the time on the label to 3.05. So DJs would think it was shorter and play it anyway. No shit. It took radio station program directors a while to figure out why their playlists were running about 40 seconds long. But by then, the song was already a hit. Okay. So, yeah, I'm just thinking about the DJ who's, like, ready to come back in at the end of the song, and it's, like, not ending. Right. That was... That was... <laughs> that was a trip. That, that was. So, uh, Spectre heard all of these opinions as criticism and got very nervous. What opinions? It's too long. It's too it's a, slow. It's a little slow. The title's not right. Spectre said in a 2003 interview with Telegraph Magazine, I didn't sleep for a week when that record came out. I was so sick, I had a spastic colon. I had an ulcer. Oh, my God. So Billy Joel, I promised you some Billy Joel. Oh, yeah. Thank God. So Billy Joel, who inducted the Righteous Brothers into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh-huh. made a sly reference to You've Lost That Loving Feeling in his song, The Entertainer. And the lyrics are, if you're going to have a hit, you got to make it fit. So they so cut, they it, cut down it down to, to 305. Right. Yeah, that's about okay. <laughs> you've lost that love and feeling. Does it slap? Yeah, it slaps. It slaps. <laughs> So the song also got a boost when the Righteous Brothers performed it on the variety show called Shindig! Exclamation point. Uh, that launched in 1964, and it was just a few months before the song was released that the show launched. Medley and Hatfield, the Righteous Brothers, were regulars on the show, and they always got screams from the many young girls in the audience, and appearances on the show gave them national exposure, with which combined with the release of the song made them superstars. But were the girls peeing themselves? They were not peeing themselves, like the Beatles. This is this is a, a quote from Bill Medley from uh, recent, recent years. It would be like being on American Idol every week. Then recording Loving Feeling, it had a dramatic change on our life. It was very fast. We went from 1 to 60 in a heartbeat. He said 1 to 60, not 0 to 60, which I do not love. <laughs> so in the uk a version by Scylla black was released before the righteous brothers version 
Okay. So you've you, got you lost that love and feeling? Yeah, by Scylla Black. Would you like to hear the Scylla Black version? I would. And how did this happen? The song had been recorded and released in the US, but they just had like different a different schedule for a release. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. There's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, baby. But baby, baby, I know it. This is somehow wider. Yeah. No, my ears hurt. No, she seems murdery. And this is not produced very well compared to... Sounds terrible. This song was released in the U.S. in December of 64. And for whatever reason, it took an extra couple of months to come out in England, in the U.K. And Scylla Black beat the Righteous Brothers to it. And how did that one chart? So funny you should ask. Both songs charted the same week with Black at number two and the Righteous Brothers at number three. And then the Oh and then, eat it. and then the next week the Righteous Brothers went to number one. Ugh. And it gave Phil Spector his first number one UK hit. I mean it's arguably better, but just, you know, girl power. Girl power. Quote Barry Man. One night in early nineteen sixty five, our phone rang at three AM. Cynthia Wheel picks up. It was Brian Wilson calling from L.A. He said... Of course it was. You got to meet this guy, Charlie Manson. Yeah, right. (laughs) He said, quote, your song is the greatest record ever. I was ready to quit the music business, but this has inspired me to write again. I want to write with you guys. In my sandpit. Please come over. Right, in my sandpit. And half asleep, Cynthia was like, now? So the song was super popular, highly, highly popular on the radio. According to the Performing Rights Organization, Broadcast Music Inc., or BMI, it became the most played song of all time on American radio in 1997 with over 7 million airplays over all the versions. And this overtook Yesterday from the Beatles. In 97, this happened. In 97, it overtook Yesterday, yeah. At the end of 99, the song was ranked by BMI as the most played song of the 20th century, having been broadcast more than 8 million times on American radio and television. What about the National Anthem? mm? (laughs) How often do they play the National Anthem on the radio? Uh, I thought you said broadcast media. Radio and broadcast media. But they only play that like once a, a day or whatever when there's a baseball game. It remains the most played song, having accumulated... Almost 15 million airplays by 2011. The song also received 11 BMI Pop Awards by 1997. Ooh. The most for any song has that ever has been is 14. And then in 2019, it was displaced as the most played song on US radio. Do you want to take a guess as to what song beat it? In 2019, it was displaced. Every Breath You Take by The Police. Oh, I never would have guessed that. 
The popularity of the song also means that it was one of the highest grossing songs for its copyright holders. It was estimated by the BBC program The Richest Songs in the World in 2012 to be the third biggest earner of royalties of all songs behind White Christmas and Happy Birthday. Wow. So. Isn't there a movie about this? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Is there? White, it's well, called White Christmas. No, uh, you know, like I think it's about a boy where he like made he got rich doing some kind of like holiday jingle. Oh, it's Love Actually. Has no life. Christmas is all around us. No, but two Hugh Grant movies with similar themes. This is like Hugh Grant is just this lonely rich guy that oh, friends a little is boy. It, is it music and lyrics? No, it's called How many about Hugh Grant a movies? boy. Oh my god! Okay. <laughs> Uh, one of the reasons for the song's resurgence during the mid-80s was the song's inclusion in the iconic 1980s film Top Gun. Top Gun. Okay, so Maverick, played by Tom Cruise, assisted by Goose. No, I want the full Aviv treatment, like exterior, day. In- interior, <laughs> navy bar, night. Turn, Goose and Maverick sit at the bar. $20. With two other Navy guys whose names I don't remember. They see a hot blonde played by Kelly McGillis, and someone bets someone else that Maverick can't have sex with her in the bathroom. I don't know. It just. And so. She's all that, but a little grosser. Yeah. Am I a bet? Am I a fucking bet? And so Maverick says, you know, Goose, I think she's lost that loving feeling. She has not lost that look. Goose, she's lost it, Matt. Come on. I hate it when she does that. Excuse me, miss. Hey, hey, hey. Don't worry, I'll take care of this. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. There's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. I hate how we were groomed to think that these scenarios of assault are grand romantic gestures. Yeah. Well, don't worry, because he follows her into the bathroom in a minute. Look at her body language. Well, she's a lesbian. In real life. And Tom Cruise is very litigious. I like your girl. Okay. I'm just saying, even though she's supposed to be liking it, she's visibly she uncomfortable. She clearly doesn't like it. <laughs> so, uh, in other popular uses of media... The song made a significant appearance in the TV sitcom Cheers. Love me some Cheers. It was said to be the favorite song of the main character, Rebecca, the Kirstie Alley character, uh, Mm -hmm. in the episode Please, Mr. Postman. And it was included in multiple episodes throughout the series. The song was also adopted as a terrace chant by supporters of the English football club, the Nottingham Forest. Oh, terrace. I thought you said terrorist. No, terrace. Like, Like, that's what the... like. Sweet like Caroline is for out. the right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Red Sox. The socks. Socks. So this this was this charted in the UK in three different decades. We said unprecedented number one hit three different times. So once in the sixties when it originally came out, once in the eighties 
when Top Gun happened and once in the 90s when a different Righteous Brothers song got the same movie treatment and they re-released Love and Feeling a third time. Um, so most of the monster part of the famous monster of the story comes in part two. However, I couldn't couldn't leave you with a with a a show just about institutionalized racism. There also has to be, you know, crime. Of course, not not that institutionalized racism. The hard is kind. Cr- yeah, the hard yeah hard kind. So this is your this is your content and trigger warning for kind of fucked up shit about to happen. Oh, God. Okay. So, Bill Medley, one of the two Righteous Brothers, met his first wife, Karen O'Grady, in church in 1963. Of course, her name's Karen. Karen they, they Karen O'Grady. They started dating in 63, and they were married at the beginning of his music career. So, like, she was with him throughout this entire process. They had a son named Darren, who was born in 65. Horrible name. Darren, I hate the name yeah. Darren. But and her name is Karen. Darren so and like, Karen. <laughs> yeah. So that's great. that ain't great. Great stuff. And they divorced okay. when Darren was about five. So like seventy, seventy one. Why was there foul play? There, there is foul play, but not yet. <laughs> okay. Karen remarried this dude named Kloss. Kloss is his last name. She became Karen Kloss. So Bill Medley was having affairs with multiple women, including singers who were on Phil Spector's record label with him. Of course he was. Okay. Of course he was. He wrote later that he attempted to reconcile with Karen, but by that time she was dating another guy who she eventually would marry, and she refused Bill Medley's like attempts to reconcile. By what time? Um, like by the time? like mid seventies, okay. so so I'm I'm sorry, like early seventies, like seventy two, three, four, five, six, right? Okay. And he wrote, in spite of his divorce, Karen was still my best friend. By 1976, Karen was Karen Kloss, K L A A S, and was living in Hermosa Beach, California, which is like a suburb of L A. Sure. So Medley also remarried. He remarried a woman named Susie Robertson in 1970, and then Janice Gorham. Both marriages were soon annulled, and he had a number of other relationships with women, including Darlene Love, who was on the the Phil Spector record label with him, Mary Wilson, Connie Stevens. Um, And Medley was also weirdly like a close friend of Elvis, who deserves his own episode. So like, you know, they're in the ecosystem. Okay. So here's where things get a little fucked up. Lay it on me. On January 30th, if, and if you know anything from listening to the dollop, as, whenever there are specific dates, you know something's about to go down. So on January 30th, 1976, Karen dropped off her youngest son, Damien, at like kindergarten. Okay. And was stopping home before she was supposed to meet two friends for coffee. And she had recently broken her leg following a failed attempt to ride Darren, her oldest son's skateboard. And she was using crutches to get around. I think that the name Darren is the name of the devil, but Damien also name of devil. Damien is absolutely the name of the devil from (laughs) The Omen. Medley wrote that Darren had been with him that day. So Darren is around 11 at this point, and Damien is like five-ish. Okay, so she's on crutches. She's at school. 
She drops him off at school. She leaves to go home real quick, and then she's supposed to meet two friends for coffee. But Hermosa Beach is like a kind of an up, a snooty, upscale community, by the way, and to this day still is. You know, the 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 ex-wife of a righteous brother would live in Hermosa Beach. According to Medley, Karen rarely locked her back door, and people had seen her enter her house, but... She didn't show up to coffee, and so they called the house, and she didn't answer. And so they went to her home and spotted the crutches laying on the floor. Just the crutches? Yes. No Karen. So they pushed into the house, and a guy was there. And he just said, hi, and then left. He like greeted them, and then he bailed. And the two women found Karen unconscious in the bedroom, she had been sexually assaulted and strangled, and they called 911. She was rushed to the hospital, and she was in a coma for four days, and she eventually died on February 3rd, 1976. Uh, was this the original Night Stalker strangler? No. This was not the original <laughs> okay. Night Stalker a strangler. Few but- notes, hold on. A few notes from me. Yes, yes. I learned in copy editing class that strangled means to death by definition. So mm-hmm. that you you're not strangled unless you're died, which she did. Right. Um, but I have since tried to look this up, and it seems that I think maybe just like colloquial use has changed the. Should we ask Seglin again? Nature, yeah, we're gonna have to call in Jeff Seglin, friend of the show. Friend of the show. <laughs> I will send him a note. Please. Uh, and then second note. Who did this? Good question. <laughs> so. Medley decided to take time off of music. So Bill Medley like quit music, quit the Righteous Brothers in order to look after Darren, who no longer had, you know, a a live-in guardian, live-in parent or whatever. A mother. A mother. Not just because the boy had lost his mother, but like there's like also kind of a logistical problem, which is like he has no one to raise him. His dad. This is what I'm saying. Like, but if he's on tour all the time, got it. Um, so the murder hadn't been solved, and they like they had no idea who did it, other than they knew that it was this guy. This guy greeted them and was just like, "Hi," and then left. And then left. He's the prime suspect. Okay. Right. So the the they have no idea who this guy is. He, they're looking for him. The police are useless, and Medley wound up hiring a private investigator to track this guy down this is a quote from bill medley from his book i'll never forget the first mother's day after karen passed all the children in school had to write a mother's day card for their moms and darren wrote me a father's day card i can still see darren and his five-year-old brother damien standing in the bathroom of my beach house brushing their teeth and getting ready for bed These two beautiful little boys, it just broke my heart. I was sad and incredibly angry at the same time. I wanted to find the son of a bitch who killed their mom. Did he? Well, here's, this is the story. We're we're on a journey together. (laughs) So You know I'm a very impatient person. (laughs) I know. So police had ruled out the husband, the, the current husband. Class. Class, right. They focused on the unknown man that the witnesses had seen. He had been described as a white male in his late 20s, about between 5'7 and 5'9. He had brown hair and a beard. So the murder just went unsolved for seven years. Police closed the case. It was a cold case, right? 
But then the police reopened the case in the wake of the ritual abuse scandal that surrounded the McMartin preschool in Manhattan Beach, where Klaas's children were students. So she had dropped off Damien at McMartin preschool. So the day that she got killed, the day that she was killed. So are you familiar with the McMartin preschool case? I remember this being something that like my mom and her friends would mm-hmm. talk about when I was little uh, in the same vein of like there were like these supposed clowns that were driving around neighborhoods in vans kidnapping kids. It, it's about the same. It has the same level of truth <laughs> to it. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I do remember it being, you know, one of the first court cases that I remember like in my young brain, like OJ was the first one that we were really following. Yeah. And, and there was also um, another big one that my parents or my mom and her friends were following was um John Bonet Ramsey. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was before that. This was yeah. This started before we were born, but the court cases were like right when we were very, very young. But when was the first one? The first court case? Yeah. Was eighty seven. Okay. Yeah, that tracks. But it lasted for a long time. Yeah. There's a great episode of You're Wrong About about the McMartin preschool case, but the a, a quick a quick rundown is someone somewhere got it in their heads that the teachers were abusing the children and turning it into some kind of like Satan. They were like Satanists and they were like sexually abusing the children in for the glory of Satan. And if you read the transcripts, it's very clear that the kids are like, yeah, I guess they like took my like ate my poop or something like they like are truly just like making stuff up because they they think that the adults want to hear like they they think yeah. that their, their adults are waiting for them to say something <laughs> um great. yeah it's if it's it, it great <laughs> i mean it's just funny that how kids are like right the worst thing they can think of is like yeah and then they ate my poop yeah right um and so <laughs> but it's just like such a strange coincidence that the most famous preschools abuse case or whatever that like kick-started the satanic panic of the 80s also happened to be the school where that that karen class dropped off damien earlier that day and they reopened the case because they thought that it could could be connected okay right was it it wasn't it uh, super duper wasn't so that was also a that was also a dead end Okay. But detectives ultimately found no link between the murder and the school, especially because there was no abuse at the school whatsoever. And investigators were able to get a DNA profile from the crime scene in the 90s, right? They like still had samples, blah, blah, blah. And they made a DNA profile, but they couldn't make a match. And so in 2000 so it was when the case went cold again and then in 2009 detectives reopened the case so finally in 2017 so not that long ago considering the story started in 1963 in 2017 authorities said that they had solved the case using what's called familial dna and the only reason that i like know what familial dna is is because of the other podcast that i do law and order special viewing unit so are you do you know what familial dna the situation the the situation is sure don't so the deal with familial dna is okay let's say you commit a crime right Yep. And your DNA is not in any database because you've never committed a crime before. That's what you think. That's what I think. That's exactly <laughs> what I think, right? Um, but your sister 
has committed a crime. Yeah, lots of them. And so your and her her DNA is in the system because she has had her blood at crime scenes or whatever. All over crime scenes. So what familial DNA does is says, oh, we have the link. You know, we can prove that this DNA and this DNA, this mystery DNA and the DNA that we have on file are not necessarily the same person, but are definitely related. Okay. And so it's it's pretty um, it's a little controversial, right? Because there's no no guarantee and people like say that it's a kind of an abuse of their fourth amendment rights because their dna they're like it's like this weird kind of exclusionary thing like well we know it's someone related to you so like let's you know and that's all you know right they don't know if it's like your mother or your brother they they can tell how much of your dna is shared so like if it was your dad or your mom they would be able to tell because they only you only share like a certain proportion of your dna versus like a sibling yeah so they identified the killer in 2017, and the killer is this guy, Kenneth Troyer. Troyer is believed to have committed the crime and several other sexual assaults and robberies during the same time period. Sheriff Jim McDonald, who is the, the Hermosa Beach sheriff at the time, mm-hmm. said at the time being 2017, said in a news conference that they first attempted to do a familial dna search in 2011 but couldn't find a match and then a family member provided the dna that connected them to troyer six years ago so so it's not that they had something in the system it's that someone offered it someone offered the dna oh who we don't know we don't know who we don't know who we don't know who what the I f- their identity has to be protected in a, in a situation like this. Sure. So Troyer is not alive. Troyer was shot and killed by police in Orange County in 1982. According to a March 15th, 1982 article in the LA Times, Troyer was 36 years old when he escaped from prison, a California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. And he was serving a sentence for burglary. And he was shot and killed after police received a tip about this fugitive whereabouts and he led police on a brief chase crashed into a tree where he made a quote furtive move toward police officers upon exiting the car and was shot to death Mm, okay was this the man with the brown beard this is the man with the brown beard kenneth troyer and what was his connection to karen was this a completely random act seems he befriend her it seems completely random he was he was wanted he was suspected for doing this around that area for a lot, like a lot of sexual assault and robberies around the area in the same time period. Authorities said Troyer may have had a relative who lived in the neighborhood and he had been seen walking in the area days before her death. But never real I mean like this is a little shift hanky to me. This is like like too convenient. Uh, yeah, the he's dead. A family member came forward, gave the DNA, gave the DNA way after this guy died, and they're like pinning it on him. I I don't know. I mean, I have no reason to not believe it's true, other than like the dude was shot by cops and can't speak for himself. But like, it's a uh, it's a little weird. This morning when I woke up, my dog door was open. Yeah. And I started watching All Be Gone in the Dark. Great. 
which is about the original Night Stalker slash East Bay or East Area rapist. And I literally had to stop watching it. I don't know if I said this on the show already. I had to stop watching it because it was so disturbing. This is pretty disturbing. And now I not only have to worry about fucking serial rapists, but also randos escaping from jail. Well, the rando escaping from jail was shot really fast. (laughs) This is from the LA Times. Medley had been waiting 40 years for a resolution and often thought about Klaus's killing. But he would hear her voice in the back of his head telling him, let it go. This guy's either dead or in prison. And he said, I always hoped that I would find out. And he did. Maybe. I have I have no reason to cast doubt on this, and I couldn't find any journalism saying, like, maybe it wasn't this guy. It just, like, it feels weird to me, and that is absolutely where it stops. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have no reason to, to think that it wasn't this guy. It just, like, feels a little weird. Darren Medley, so who's now in his 40s or 50s, Darren would be in his 50s, says, I didn't believe we could identify who committed the crime. But 41 years later, we know what happened. Murder, murder, death, death, murder. Murder, murder, death, death. But Phil Spector, having already produced other massive hits, went on to produce more records. He produced Let It Be, as we talked about. He also produced Imagine, The Lenin Plastic Ono Band, The Concert for Bangladesh, All Things Must Pass, Death of a Ladies' Man by Leonard Cohen, Proud Mary, and Rock and Roll High School by The Ramones. He also did Zippity Doodah for Disney. Which is highly problematic, yeah. as we've already discussed. <laughs> A not, not racist song. He also worked with Celine Dion in the 90s, but those sessions have never been released. So not Titanic. Not Titanic. It was 1995, so pre-Titanic. Which came out, I think, in 97. Mm-hmm. So in 2003, the Righteous Brothers played this song to open the ceremonies when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This was odd timing because Phil Spector was arrested on murder charges the month before the ceremony. The month before. And that is where we're going to leave it for this week. Okay, so you're just going to leave us on a murdery cliffhanger. Murdery cliffhanger. And next week we will pick back up with the story of Phil Spector, famous monster. Famous monster, Phil Spector did all his murders in an echo chamber potentially he recorded all of them <laughs> recording my felonies was the greatest idea i ever had um so what do we want to go out with this this week maybe maybe i'll try to find a black artist that did a cover of love and feeling great so where can people find us on the internet find us on the internet at lyrics for lunch on socials please share our shows there on your own handles if you like it um word of mouth is the best way for us to find new listeners who might also enjoy our show and we love hearing from you and the the stories that make you laugh or make you angry or teach you things you didn't know about music or if you have any cool fun facts let us know yeah, drop us a line anywhere. You can always email us longer messages at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Send us song requests there. and um, Leave us know. a rate and review wherever you get your podcast. Apple Music is the best for rating and reviewing, that is. Yeah, help us get into the ears of others. Help us help you. <laughs> and tune in next week when we continue our famous monster, part three and a half, Harvey Phillips. Harvey Phillips Specter. You know, has there ever been a person named Harvey that wasn't a pure fucking evil? 
What about that invisible bunny from that movie, Harvey? That's not real. <laughs> so until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Don't, don't lose that love and feeling. And stop stealing shit from black people. Yeah.